When I'm having a good hair day, that's when I'm my best self. I feel good. I look great. And I will say, painting sulfate-free rose water collection is a part of that. The rose water collection. It feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Annie, and welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartMedia and How Stuff Works. Hello again, listeners. <laughs> uh, we are, I'm once again joined by Samantha. Hi. Said again twice, and now that's three times. Oh, wow. Um, and this is our... We in in the last episode, you got to sit in on a therapy session, um, one of mine, You're right, yours, and it was um, for me very uh, vulnerable and frightening experience. And now right. it's your and turn. Now Samantha. it's my turn. <laughs> and, and y'all, I've kind of I laughed because when we decided we were going to do this, I was like, oh yeah, we're definitely going to go in headstrong, and I'm so excited. And then I was like, oh, shit, I have to do therapy. <laughs> Like I, I, I kind of paused as I was realizing, oh yeah, that means I have to unearth all the things yeah. that I try to stuff down as much as possible because coping, right? Right. Um, just so I'm going to do the trigger warnings since I guess you don't know what happened, Andy, right? Nope, not, so, not yet. Again, like we said in the last one, we did not sit in with each other no. on these th- on these um, episodes. Um, we're on friends, these sessions. but we're not those guys. I, we're so close. But I, I've been talking. I said, let's do, go ahead and do uh, therapy sessions together as a couple. Yeah. Isn't this what happens? We're a couple now? Work, podcast, work lives? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that yeah. how that goes? Exactly. So for trigger warning, um, it is going to have a lot of childhood trauma, neglect, emotional, and physical abuse. Um I don't think I do too much about sexual abuse, but just to know uh, if you have abandonment issues or if you have attachment issues, it may trigger you. Mm-hmm. So just to throw that out there. Um, before we started, I know Annie had um, previously, well, we talked about rather some types of therapy um, and how to find a good therapist. And um, <laughs> I'm going to put this as a backstory. Um, I have a long history with therapy. And several therapists and several rounds of healing tactics from religious to clinical. Um, I've experienced several different forms. Studying social work and being in the treatment field, sometimes it gets really easy to play the diagnosis game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, like many of my generation, grew up with the thought that therapy was a sign of weakness and prayer should be enough. Uh, now, please know I'm not saying anything about religion or prayer, but as someone who was in, has been in the field for a while, I know there are things that need to be dealt with on a clinical level yeah, um, and maybe even on a uh, psychiatric level. Mm -hmm. So when I I say psychiatric in the state of Georgia, psychiatry is a lot of like medication, um, specifically types of anxiety, depression, ADHD, all of those types of things. And I'm not one of those proponents who advocate for pills, but I think it can be necessary. Right. Um, And again, like I said, people of faith are amazing people. They can be, and and that might be enough. Yeah. But, again, there are things that cannot be addressed just by hope. Yes. Yes. <laughs> this is those moments of when you need community, when you need outside help, and, and that's okay. Um, and, again, like I, told, like I said before, I did go that religious avenue, and for that moment, it was okay. But eventually, I had to go a little beyond. Um, and... Now that we're talking about the little beyond or the clinical level, mm-hmm. um, I want to talk about specific types of therapy. Um, in the previous episode, Annie, I know you we discussed different types of therapy, and but I wanted to get a little more in depth 
Yeah. And the definitions of some of these types of therapy. And just to throw this out there, there's like over 50 there's a lot. to 100 probably. Yeah. And it's always developing and there's always new ideas. There's new all new concepts. And also there's also new, um, some diagnoses that haven't been diagnosed yet. So we know that the DSM-5, DSM-4, it keeps coming out because it has to reevaluate what yeah. is out there. So for a long while, autism and being on the spectrum was called... Uh, Asperger's. Um, and Asperger's is, was an overall term that was like a general umbrella yeah. for people who may not be severe Asperger's, mm-hmm. um, but they realize this is a spectrum and you may have the lesser to the larger. And it, it, it became a new diagnosis in itself and Asperger's was kind of thrown out the window. And I think that's necessary for many of things. We've changed the idea of multiple personality disorder has also become something else, which is disassociative identity disorder. Right. Um, so I think, you know, it changes constantly and the therapy types and the therapy um, theories, therapeutic theories have changed mm-hmm. and it con- will continue to change because right. one of the things that we don't understand quite completely is the brain. Is it's the mind. complicated as it turns right, out. It's the chemicals, it's all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but we did want to talk about a little bit of what is out there, what is there, and I'm only giving a few of those. Uh, one of them would be CBT. We talked about that previously the cognitive behavioral therapy. And the concept behind that is that our thoughts about a situation, how we feel and how we behave are all interrelated. This teaches you to change and examine how you think, act in order for you to change how you feel. And again, I think that's important because how we feel sometimes takes over what should what we should think or the logical senses. Right? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. I did not say that for me. And this is often actually used for children as young as four and focuses more on behavior. So I work with children, and this is one of the things is if they have erratic behaviors or um, hyperactive behaviors, maybe CBT could be an alternate route to medication. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the diagnoses that may be treated with CBT include substance abuse, anxiety, depression, PTSD and self-esteem issues and and so many things because under CBT, we have things like DBT, which you had also talked about, the dialectical behavior therapy. And this is, again, a type of CBT and usually teaches skills such as how to manage manage attention or mindfulness skills, manage and cope with emotions or emotional regulation skills, deal effectively with others, the interpersonal skills, and tolerate emotion distress, the distress tolerance skills. This is a bit more intensive and also actually involves groups. Uh-huh. Um, and it is often used for borderline personality disorder. I know that was an episode with stuff mom never told you previously. Eating disorders, self-harming behaviors, and even anger issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also want to talk about EMDR. Actually, I think that was highlighted on um, Russian Doll. Oh, was it? Yeah, the whole light thing. I don't know if any of you have seen that. I hope that's not I've a spoiler. See, oh, light thing. Spoiler. <laughs> um, because one of the caretakers to the main character is a therapist. Uh-huh. And she has this light uh, thing oh. where she uses. But this uh-huh. is a non-traditional form of psychotherapy designed to diminish negative feelings associated with memories or traumatic events. So the goal of EMDR is to fully process past experiences and sort out the emotions attached to these experiences. And then I also want to talk about the traumatic, uh, trauma-focused cognitive therapy, which is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh-huh. Um, and that addresses the specific emotion and mental health needs of children, adolescents, adult survivors, and families who are struggling to overcome the destructive effects of early trauma. So narrative therapy, which is a form of counseling that views people as separate from their problems. This allows people to get distance from the issues to see how it might actually be helping them mm-hmm. or processing them more than if it's hurting them. So essentially, you write it out as if you're the third person, right. from what I understand. Um, and again, I don't know. I think as you told me, yeah, that's what you may be doing, a narrative. Um, so part of my therapy is narrative work, which is um, basically describing something, a, a traumatic experience in my case. Um, and going through it step by step. And then if you get overwhelmed and you feel like you can't tell the story, then um, you have to, there's these things called like the stress units and you have to right. what is identify why, what is it, why, how to manage it, and then try to tell the whole story. Right. And I've done it 
one time with one of my experiences so far, and it, it was it was difficult, but right. I can see the value in it for right. sure. So that's kind of the route I'll be going future therapies, just because it was so it's it's so traumatic for me to go back. Yeah, and honestly, because the memories are so fuzzy, mm-hmm. that it's best to be a third person story. And again, these are just a small list, obviously, of all the types of therapy that is out there. I found one about feminist therapy. You and I had talked about that, which was fascinating in itself. It started in the 1960s. -hmm. And I'm like, it's all about empowerment and and growing. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'm down for that. I'm (laughs) down for that. Give me that. Um, And like I said, it is according to you. Um, And we told you in the previous episodes about trying to find a good therapist, you need to see what they're qualified in. They typically have a list of their specialties, Mm -hmm. and that is good to look at. Yes, for sure. And um, another thing from our past episode is our disclaimer, which we can kind of briefly do. If you want a more detailed disclaimer, (laughs) listen to the one before this. Right. um, Legally, we went through all the hoops of having these on air. <laughs> right, essentially signing all the uh, disclosure forms, consent forms, consent forms HIPAA forms. Yes, um, and we, this has been months of talking about, of doing therapy and then talking about what would be healthy and what wouldn't for us to share um, in this kind of format. So uh, we, we've done all those things. Um, we are protecting each other. There's been confidentiality. um, And we are podcasters. We sign the forms. If you get therapy, I promise you, unless (laughs) you sign a form and have a podcast, like, it's confidential. Again, it was so unusual. Dr. Coleman was like, well, let me think about this. How do we make this legal (laughs) and protective of both you and I? Yes. So we're about to get to the session here. But first, we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Okay. So a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair. I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something a little weird, something I don't want it to do, (laughs) then I I can't stop thinking about it the rest of the day. Oh my God, we've all been there. Pantene's rose water collection feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. Your hair doesn't look really great. Thank you. I actually worked in a place for a while that was very sensitive environmentally, and we weren't allowed to use shampoos that had sulfate in them, so that's something that I look for these days. And bonus, I love the way that my hair looks now. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. Okay, the new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman have never been more hilarious as America's favorite moms turned gangsters, Beth, Ruby, and Annie. Already this season, there have been some big twists and breathtaking surprises. The fans love it, and the critics do too. Variety calls good girls addictive and audacious. Entertainment Weekly says it's just what you need, and Rotten Tomatoes certifies good girls 100% fresh. So if you've missed any of the new season, get yourself online and stream it now. And Sundays on NBC, watch it live. There's sure to be big twists and huge surprises. So you'll want to enjoy your Good Girls experience in a spoiler-free zone. The all-new, all-hilarious season of Good Girls, Sundays on NBC and stream anytime. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Hey, so yes, we're about to get into my session. Um, And I'm going to tell you, it's going to be a little more intense then <laughs> I'm already feeling it, then Annie, because somehow my sessions in the last two sessions, again, we told you we were doing previously, was not this intense, but we did discuss that what I needed at this point in time in my sessions were to break down my past because a lot of my triggering, a lot of my um, episodes happened with what she would call body memory. Mm-hmm. And for me, I would say sensory uh, triggering. Mm-hmm. Because it's not necessarily things that I completely clearly remember is what I experienced. So it may be a smell. It may be a taste. 
it may be a conversation. But typically it's smell and taste mm -hmm. is what I do more. Or even like the fear in itself may be familiar to me. So I'm right. medically like the fight or flight. So we're going to be discussing what you're going to hear are my times in the orphanage and with my biological family. I am adopted. I was adopted when I was seven and I came into the U.S. from South Korea. Beforehand, I was actually in an orphanage. And beforehand, I was actually in the care of a biological grandmother who was very strict um, and from the memories that I have was physically abusive. Um, and you're going to hear a lot of things of that. And you're going to have hear moments of me kind of having breakdowns, but revelations, I guess, about the past memories. So just to throw that out there, it, you're going to hear me cry. But you know what? I'm okay with that because... Crying is not weakness. So here you go. Thank you for doing this. And real talk. I'm, I'm nervous. Okay. All right. So let's talk about that. All right. Here we go. I guess in general, yeah. um, obviously, I've talked about a lot about my trauma um, mm -hmm. for a while now. Like that's been a part of my job. That's been a part of my passion. Mm -hmm. But going in depth, which is what you and I were talking about in general, is really nerve-wracking for me because unrooting things that I mm -hmm. can't quite remember is very um, fearful. I guess I'm anticipating, because I am a pessimist, <laughs> maybe a realist, <laughs> however you want to look at it, that the worst-case uh -huh. scenario may happen. Depending on the day. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, you and I talked about uh, the parental situation with the feminist talk, and that went even worse than I thought. So I'm not going to lie. It's kind of where I'm at in life, um, expecting the worst case scenario. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But so, um, yeah, I'm a little nervous. Because again, I kind of forgot I had to be a part of this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and you certainly don't have to be. But no. I understand and appreciate the... Um, the reason why right. you are putting yourself out there and being right. vulnerable. And I know that that's going to send a really powerful message to people that hear it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so feeling like things like kind of things have happened in terms of um, some events in your life so far is like worst case scenario, meaning recent conversations with family. Are you part of, is the fear also related to like, who's going to hear this? Of course. Um, how it will impact them. I think in general, uh, whether it is just talking about the past, including being in Korea in an orphanage, even though that has nothing to do with uh, current situations or my current family members, I still am afraid that they're going to see that as an attack or me being ungrateful, which you and I have talked about already, mm -hmm. that I have this double guilt yeah. of um, really wishing... I had a whole case, different case scenario in some aspects, um, mm -hmm. as well as the fact that I feel ungrateful. And I've been mm -hmm. privileged, obviously, mm -hmm. because I'm in this position where I am mm -hmm. healthy. I am able mm -hmm. to be educated. I am able to cope and fend for myself um, mm -hmm. and survive. But at the same time, there's so many things I feel like is lacking and missing in my life. And... Mm -hmm has been part of the reason that I can't connect with people. Again, you and I mm -hmm. have talked about that. Yeah. Um, and I feel like the only way I'm ever, I'm going to say this is a kind of a thought process, mm -hmm. is that the only way that I've been able to connect with people is if I feel like I can serve them in some how, shape, or manner or support mm -hmm. them. And that's my worth. Like I have to prove my worth, essentially. Um, yeah. You and I talked about the whole rejection factor and the fact that I, right. I fear that um, with the rejection that I'm also in the way and an inconvenience. I think you and I talked about mm -hmm. that as well. Yeah, we've um, talked about a lot of that. And but, yeah. It's all connected, it is. right? Like, right. You know, the idea of um, some of the, the survivor guilt that yeah. I'm hearing, right, about you are a child that was adopted mm -hmm. and what about the children that you knew that may not have been, right? right? So right. there's that element. But then also um, some of the culture within the home that you were adopted into. Right. Um, also 
perpetuates. Right. Like you mentioned some of this um, feelings of if you have a, an adverse reaction or if you have an opinion that differs from those of your other family members, that then you're ungrateful. Right. Um, and what a burden that's been right. for you. Right. And yeah, I guess um, I know the last time we talked, we talked about the fact that I do want to dig deeper because that's mm-hmm. the aspect that I feel like has been obviously the the cornerstone of my reactions and my relationships mm-hmm. and my triggering and my mm-hmm. whole um, traumatic background as well as like even my current field and my passions mm-hmm. uh, to be mm-hmm. very, very candid. But I think, I'm not going to lie, I'm really scared. Like it's mm-hmm. not anything of the, like I'm not going to mince words, I'm scared. Right, right. Of course. I mean, it's kind of uncharted territory and it's not comfortable. Right. It's going to be something new that you'll dive into, you know, and I think I think we've discussed about how you're at a place in your life where it's becoming apparent that it's necessary. Right. Because ways that you have been able to cope may not be working as well for you. Right. As they were in the past. Exactly. Um, so I'll say the spiel that you know, and I'm sure you also say to your, the people you work with. You get to control the pace of this, right? right? You get to decide um, what we talk about regarding some of the trauma reprocessing and um, going back right. to peeling back the layers right. of a lot of experiences that um, you probably have not thought about as much. Right. Um, and so if there's ever a time when we're talking about something or we get onto a topic and you're feeling really triggered or emotionally reactive and just feeling like you need a pause or you want to change topics, you get to control that. Okay. So you just let me know and I'll continue to check in with you. Okay. Um, so in terms of places to start, I know that we've chatted a bit about um, some of the memories, there being pieces of memories mm-hmm. and some memories being concrete. And then a lot of the memories really being held also in your body versus verbal. Right. I'm wondering in light of those conversations, if there's a place that feels safest for us to start to talk. Um, I don't know if it's the safest, maybe it's the most clear uh, mm-hmm. in which, of course, I would rather know than not. That's kind of my whole thing. I would rather know if something's bad. And I feel okay with that, so I can at least be prepared or I've already reacted. Um, so some of the things that I, I do remember um, is the fact that I, I lived with my biological grandmother, who's the mother of my biological mother, who gave me okay. up um, at a very young age. And I was told later that it was due to the fact that she got remarried. And within the South Korean culture, I don't know if it's law or whether it's just um, cultural, that typically a half-child or a stepchild does not live with a male to prevent a further abuse and or um, stigma. I don't, I don't actually know. Mm. And so in which I was given to the care of my grandmother, who was a very strict woman. Mm. I was the only child with her who owned, I think, a restaurant. It was some kind of serving thing. I know that for mm. sure. Oh, it's interesting. You see how that theme yeah. has popped up already. Yeah. Okay. We'll, um, book, we'll, book, we'll bookmark that. Bookmark that one. <laughs> um, I know that I could not stay with my biological father because of his alcoholism. Now, that was something that I remember clearly um, because mm-hmm. I rarely saw him, but I might, saw, I might have visited with his mother, um, and I do have some memories of going with her um, at mm-hmm. one point in time. Uh but, Let me pause you for a second and ask so that um, to see if there's elements of this conversation that we can kind of even um, dial into in more personal ways. Uh, do you remember any of their names? I do not. Wow, I've never okay. been asked that. Um, and I'm very quick to react because, as you said, that there's nothing triggering. I don't even, the only reason I know my Korean name is because it's on my birth certificate mm. from Korea. Uh, what is your the, Korean name? My Korean name is Lee So Young. So my family mm-hmm. name would have been Lee. And the only mm-hmm. reason I do know that is because, uh, again, part of my uh, birth certificate, but um, my adoptive parents actually put that in my American name. So my my full name is Samantha Lee McVeigh. So they kept my, mm-hmm. yeah, they did do that. They kept my um, 
I will say for what they could do, they tried to keep my yeah. heritage. Um, yeah. But that was my family name. And outside of that, I honestly don't know. Because I can't even okay. remember anybody calling me by my name. Hmm. Oddly enough. How does it feel for you to say your Korean name out loud? Um, it feels uh, foreign, I guess, uh, the best mm-hmm. way to say it. It doesn't feel real. Mm-hmm. It, I can't identify with that. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe part of that has to do with even in being in Korea when I was in the orphanage, mm-hmm. I wanted to be someone else and I pretended to be mm-hmm. someone else, whether it was trying to protect myself from um, the hurt that was happening within my own um, age group, uh, mm-hmm. within the kids that were there or the girls that were in there, or whether it's because I felt disowned. Mm-hmm. Maybe that mm-hmm. was the best word I have. Um mm-hmm. But yeah, I can't, I can't even think that through. So to me, it's mm-hmm. such a distant idea that I can't identify with that. And if someone were to ever call me that, I would never turn around. It would not be a yeah. thing that would turn around. Um, I did remember I would write it out as a kid mm. in Korean. Mm-hmm. And then I remembered it as an adult trying to write it out. Um, when I was taking the Korean classes in mm-hmm. college, but yeah, I actually don't identify with that at all. Right. So when you say it, there is not an emotion, an emotional connection or no. reaction. To no. That? Okay. It's an unfamiliar territory, almost if I'm telling a story, or mm-hmm. almost like I feel like I'm reaching to find my identity, but it's not me. Mm-hmm. Like you're describing somebody else. Right. It really does. Which is interesting because that was the picture that I was getting when I was hearing you start to right. talk about it. Like, mm-hmm. obviously setting the scene, which is any part of sharing in there, the absence of, like, that emotional connection. Yeah. Um, which we'll get into because I think that there's something to be said about that, too. Mm-hmm. And even if it's uh, just the loss of feeling that emotional connection right. and what that has meant for you. I'm not going to lie, just realizing saying that to you, mm-hmm. and then you asking me the question about their names. Mm-hmm. It's definitely putting a lot of, um, not necessarily darkness, but overwhelming mm-hmm. um, guilt, because <laughs> that's what mm-hmm. I live off of, because I feel like I should. Um, and for some mm-hmm. reason, it feels like I'm failing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think because I remember when I was a kid here in the U.S. that one day I just started crying, um, and my mother asked me, my adoptive mother asked me why, and I said, because I can't remember her name. And I was talking about the, grand, the biological grandmother who took care of me, um, and I couldn't remember her face. Mm-hmm. I remember saying that, and my mother was, my, my adoptive mother was very compassionate about that and just talk, mm-hmm. continued to tell me how they did the best they could, and they did what was best for me in putting me in the... Um, orphanage for adoption, but yeah, I remember, <laughs> I don't even know how old that was, I think 10 or 11, and just feeling distraught mm-hmm. that I could not remember what she looked like, mm-hmm. and I could not remember her name. I you see know. that that's yeah. still is right. emotionally impactful. It you is. see that emotion in your face. Right now. I haven't thought mm-hmm. about that memory in a long time. Actually, obviously, <laughs> as I'm trying to remember, because as we're mm-hmm. talking about this, because obviously that's all related. Yeah. Because um, even though the memories of my biological family are not the greatest, because um, all of that has something to do with either guilt or, or um, survival, it still feels like I have let someone down, weirdly enough. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and to be more specific, do you feel like you've let your Korean family down and that they had expectations for you to remember them? No. <laughs> 
I I don't know if that's the thing as much as that was my life at one point in time. Mm-hmm. But more so for me, I think it was just uh, forgetting part of my life. Um, and it's mm-hmm. this whole guilt of like, I need to remember everything. I need to remember the good things. I need to know that I need to be grateful that I'm not dead. I need to remember that I need to be grateful mm-hmm. that I did have another opportunity instead of being one more statistic um, mm-hmm. of all the uh, darkness that can happen for many of the girls mm-hmm. that are cast aside um, in, mm-hmm. in that area or in that time frame. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it's just, and as a kid, mm-hmm. I, and um, I think I needed to know, I needed to feel like they missed me. And if that was the case, mm. that I need to remember who they were. Yeah. So that could be by nice. somebody missing you means that they valued you. Right. That that I were important to them. But someone cared. Yeah. Outside of that. So I think whether it's a wishful thinking and or whether it's mm. just me feeling needing to feel guilty because I'm okay. Um Mm-hmm. Whatever, which mm-hmm. whichever one that is. Mm-hmm. What I'm struck by is your level of insight at such a young age, because I I understand as an adult and and you know uh, where you are now in your life, looking back at that time frame of adoptions from Korea. Like I know that you are aware of all of the socio political mm-hmm. culture and implications around that, but when you were in it as a young child. It seems like you had this awareness of um, needing to be present or you, you describe it as to be grateful for everything because things could have been worse. And I'm curious about what you remember about where you picked up those messages. I don't, I don't honestly know whether I, it was more of like the daily survival in the orphanage because I just remember um, everything that was happening, me leaving, me being adopted, me being in a different country, me having a new family. Uh, And and it could have been just ingrained in me um, because it was almost the motto, good things are happening because you're leaving here. You're getting a new opportunity. You're getting a new family. They want you. Um, and it could be very well the case that that was the first time I've been told I've been wanted, um, and that I've been I was chosen. And I know even with my uh, now the adoptive family, their story on adopting me was a long process. So it was mm. it felt like for them it was faith in, in God doing the perfect mm. timing. And obviously, I'm not as religious, but in my mind, it was like it is. <laughs> Cool. Mm-hmm. If it, it's not coincidental, mm-hmm. but it seemed like if there's fate, it's fate. Um, yeah. And so, therefore, I should be grateful for that. Um, and that, because it kind of, that's my origin story, essentially, instead of just talking about the birth story. It began right. in the 1970s before I was born with my adopted parent having a movement and wanting to adopt and then fostering instead and having to wait until I was actually in the orphanage for a year or two to be adopted. And she, mm. my mother had a specific country um, and a st- specific gender, and she wanted, she didn't necessarily need a baby, which is rare, as you know. Mm. Um, and so all of those things seemed to just align perfectly. Um, and I think just with that uh, and with the religious aspect, it's gratefulness mm. or miracles. Those, both of those things come into play. So mm-hmm. I don't know if it's though necessarily like it came after or began before um, that I was uh, told and, and thought and 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 needed to believe that yes mm-hmm. I'm supposed to, I'm the one <laughs> for all yeah that needing to believe that about and just thinking about how adaptive that was yeah and for you and I mm-hmm. think. Um, and that's probably again why I am a social worker. Mm-hmm. There's no in in my thought process in beginning beginning this career, beginning this avenue is 
there's no way I went through all of this for just for me. Or there's no way that I can and feel and know this or, or, or um, learn or grow into this empathy without a purpose. Um, and again, this is also where I watch children. And if they're not in the same place or if they're not able to get to that same place as I am or be able to react the way I am, I feel guilty because I could. Or even though being in where I am, being where I'm at, it feels very privileged for me to be at this point. And therefore, with that privilege, I should do more. Yeah, I want to I want to pause on that for a second because there's a couple things I want to point out. Um, one that it's it's not a either or, but it's a both and, right? Like there's room for both truths to exist. That there may have been things that you wish had been that had been done differently, but also you can still hold the gratitude, mm-hmm. right? That that is there space in your mind and your heart for both of those feelings to be there. Um, and then also keeping in mind language like should that oftentimes can set all of us up for um, negative feelings, but also believing thoughts that are not helpful to mm-hmm. us. Like there is, you know, words like should, never, could, always. We don't live, life isn't absolute like that. Right. And so I think that you've done really wonderful things and have used your story and your experiences continue to help support other people, Um, you know, making sure to honor that within yourself too and lightening up on some of those more oppressive thoughts that you may say within your own self-talk. I think that's really hard for me to do. <laughs> yeah. In general. Absolutely. So I know that you had started kind of talking a bit about what you do remember and you were sharing about your maternal grandmother mm-hmm. and how you understand how you came to live with her, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that you had some visits with your paternal grandmother. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a bit more about what you with your maternal grandmother. I think you and I had already kind of discussed some of the things that I do remember, which were not the greatest memories um, Mm -hmm. of a woman who was very, very strict. Uh, I honestly don't remember much. I told you about watching Mm -hmm. Michael Jackson and Madonna and Mm -hmm. me knowing that as the U.S. at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) That just dated me, didn't it? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But then I think... I told you about the fact that I never actually had toys. Um, and that one of the reasons I think I went to see the paternal side, uh, they did mm-hmm. try to send me, from what I remember, uh, gifts and toys, and it was never given to me. I was shown it, but was told that I had to earn it. And I can't remember ever earning one. Um, mm-hmm. And these are where I have the dreams that kind of intertwine because the memories I do have. So I have this weird memory of watching them making kimchi in a giant tub. Mm. Um, I remember that. And then also having a memory of uh, men coming in um, and nothing bad at my grandmothers, the biological uh, maternal grandmothers who Mm. were customers, who were regulars and knew her. Um, and then them being kind to me, I do remember that. Uh, but me being told I need to be in the back room, which is, so if, what I remember is a store or a restaurant with a back room where we lived or a back area where we lived. Um, mm-hmm. I had, I remember a really weird, and I, I now realize I believe it had to be a dream because there's no way it could have been true that cut off a finger essentially except for mm. a little piece of, like, a skin on, and I could just see the blood and pulp and all of that when I was trying to eat wow. an apple. 
Um, and my grandmother coming back there because I'm screaming and telling me to be quiet because I'm disturbing the customers. And one of the customers came back and helped me wrap it up mm. and telling me I need to be quiet and everything will be okay. But that's all the memory that I have of that. And I swore yeah. up and down, I think when I was younger, that there was a scar on my hand, on my finger, where it happened. But looking back, I'm like, that's, that can't be right. <laughs> you don't have a scar on your hand? Um, I don't think I do have a scar on my hand. Neither would I have had a finger since I wasn't taken to the hospital <laughs> to be right, reattached. Right. Um, so the senses came way later. But I, it was so distinctive. It was so real. And I had yeah. it. Um, I was a kid when I was swearing up and down this happened to me. So, but I still remember it very clearly. Like as I'm talking to you about it, I, rem- I remember the feeling of being yelled at because I was, once again, getting in the way or being too loud. And um, I was in dire need and I didn't get it. And I had to learn to be quiet. Right. So maybe that's the. The message of that dream mm-hmm. or that experience, right? Like mm-hmm. maybe it's not the literal finger being cut off, although you could have witnessed somebody else's finger and it could have been traumatic to you. And you know, <laughs> yeah. as children, right? Children, they see something bad happen to somebody else, and their first thought is, is themselves. Right. What if it happens to me? That could possibly happen to me, kind of a thing. Right. So there's a lot of possible explanations, but overall, this idea of you being in dire need. Mm-hmm. And that need not being met or not being met by a caregiver, but by a stranger right? who came and then wrapped up your finger. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely. Honestly, I think, like I said, the kimchi memory is what I have. A memory of me eating with chopsticks and a fork is what mm-hmm. I have. And then I have another memory of which... I'm pretty sure partially, I can't tell, that I had been locked out of a home, by the home, Mm -hmm. because I came in too late, so I had to stay outside the remainder of the night. And that would put me at before five, six. Um, But then I have another memory in which I did that, and then I get attacked by a dog. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I start screaming in the same scenario of my grandmother coming out telling me to be quiet because I was waking people up. And that mm-hmm. is not that bad. So, mm-hmm. but I feel, I, I don't know, I, the, the two separate feels like it blended. Like mm-hmm. there was an incident that did happen that I blended with a nightmare that could have made it worse. But mm-hmm. again, that's kind of the memory that I have. And then I have another one, which I went to the paternal grandmother's and they were going to make something with an egg, which I dropped mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And the severe disappointment and the um, the amount of disapproval that I got from mm-hmm. dropping the egg as a four or five-year-old was mm-hmm. so harsh that I remember feeling like I had done the worst thing ever. Mm-hmm. And... That I did not, I think, ended up being without food that day or that night um, because of the incident. Yeah, so I do remember that. And then and then the other memories that I do have are, uh, I have a memory of going with my dad to his work. I'm not sure if this is real, but it seemed kind of real because... Mm-hmm. One, I think he was a musician. Two, mm-hmm. I think it was at a bar or a strip club because I remember being doted on by several young women mm. um, at that place. And I don't know where that fits in. Uh, mm-hmm. There was nothing really bad about it because <laughs> someone mm-hmm. was paying, people, people were paying attention to me. And that right. was the last thing I remember of that. And I do remember being told by both the paternal and the maternal grandmother that my dad was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And that's why he was rarely there. But Mm -hmm. he was never cruel. He was Mm -hmm. the reason I was getting these presents 
that I wasn't able to, able to have because he was trying to give it to me, get it to me. Those mm-hmm. are the mem- memories I have of that. When you were a child at that time, did you know what alcoholic? No. Like, did you know what they meant or what that? No. Did you have any, any idea? Of- no. I think uh, the, re- mem- the reason I remember part of that was I have this distinct memory of a smell. And I mm. didn't realize it until I was older. It's this weird, like, the alcohol smell of beer where it sits. Yep. And I, I didn't know what that was. As a kid, I, like, my adoptive parents do not drink. It has never mm-hmm. been present around me I've, as when I was growing up. So I never knew what that was. But when someone mm-hmm. would drink and I was around, it was so familiar mm. that I couldn't figure out why. Interesting. Um, yeah. And even now, if I smell it now, there are moments, and mm-hmm. it's specifically beer, um, that mm-hmm. I remember that really distinct alcohol smell, like someone who drank beer or amount, a large amount of beer that's on their mouth. I remember that smell. Um, and the other day, actually, I was sleeping, and uh, there was a half-open bottle of beer, or not bottle, but a can of beer, but that like mm-hmm. throughout the night, I smelled it. I was like, what is that? And it was so familiar. And that kind of linked back to, oh, yeah, this is me growing up as a kid. I remember the smell and couldn't figure out what it was. But I remember feeling sad. <laughs> I guess that's the best word because it, was, it wasn't necessarily sad because it didn't have sad memories for me because there was nothing volatile about those mm-hmm. moments when I smelled that. But I just mm-hmm. know... I wasn't, it was familiar and I wasn't supposed to be around that or something along those lines. Yeah. So, yeah. so it had a really deep ingrained association yeah, for yeah. you. Yeah, that smell is very familiar. Um, mm-hmm. And I now recognize it a little more, of course, as an adult, um, mm-hmm. that smell than when I was a kid trying to figure out what that was. Mm-hmm. It's also a really great example of how our bodies hold memories. Yeah. Even before, or even without, like a verbal memory of something, right. right? Because as a small child, not knowing what how the adults explained alcohol is right. to you, or if they did it at all, I don't know what that meant. But that that smell continues to bring you back to that moment all these years later is significant, but also really gets at how important it is at a healing because the trauma can continue to. Um, recreate itself and be, and be re-triggered um, throughout different stages of life. There was a connection I wanted to make um, when you were talking about the egg incident and the significant disappointment that you sensed from the adults in that experience. Um, again, just like these early childhood experiences and how they impact you as an adult and help, have helped shape who you are idea of not wanting to disappoint. Mm-hmm. That's been a recurring thing that I've heard you talk about throughout the sessions. Mm-hmm. I think it seems like it may have started back then. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I know you and I talked about the incident where my adoptive sister gave me a look and that sent me into a turmoil um, where I just <laughs> cried for an entire, entire hour or so. Um, yeah, and then even, like, I remember I have very strong opinionated friends, which I love. Um, I'm trying to mm-hmm. be like them. <laughs> but essentially, if I feel like I'm in the way or I might be rejected or I might do something wrong, I try to avoid it altogether. Um, and that includes part of my introvertedness is because of that. If I'm not explicitly invited and or going with someone who was invited as like a friend date type of thing, I don't want to go. If it's a friend group and they purposely left me out, it feels like a rejection. It feels like I'm in the way. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have a hard time with that. I Mm -hmm. am more likely to read into things as being me being in the way or me not being wanted. Mm-hmm. as that being more likely than anything else. So if I feel like there's an in-between, or I mm-hmm. felt like if it was an in-between thing, or like, yeah, whatever, I'm not going to show up. I'm not going to be there. Or I feel like I'm being purposely excluded, and it's fairly mm-hmm. my fault. 
So I think that's that's been a recurring theme. Obviously, uh, when I was doing the religious uh, types of counseling, we talked about the fear of rejection, mm-hmm. um, in which Jesus is great for that. He doesn't reject people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so that was nice. That was the answer. That was yeah. nice. Um, obviously, for me, uh, I've started to let go of that a little more. Um, and I think that's just being empowered enough to feel like, okay, even if I am, I'm okay. I've survived. Um, but disappointing people or failing has become the second language to rejection. So now I've gone past rejection. I've gone past being in the way of trying. Mm-hmm. And now if I try and I don't do well or I'm not perceived as well or if I'm not perceived as a big success, like there's not, um, even with this podcast that you and I talked about, you know, I told you I mm-hmm. feel like I'm a giant imposter because I don't know. I'm so insecure and I'm trying to talk to other people about not being insecure. Um mm-hmm. Even now, I'm like, if this doesn't do well, it's my fault, and I failed. Mm. <laughs> mm. Which is the same level of um, my career as a social work. I, you know, I talked about that. It's like I don't feel like mm-hmm. I've made a difference, and though I can't see all the things, and I know all the pep talk to it, you're making a difference. Blah blah blah. You don't see everything that's changed. It still feels like a failure at some point in time. Um, and I feel like it's my fault mm-hmm. and or I haven't done enough, which is going back to the health guilt thing. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly important. And I'm glad to hear that you're aware of how that's a core belief and, how, and, and what that's connected to, like mm-hmm. really where the roots of that began. Um, I think that... That's something that you and I will likely need to process some more right. because it it doesn't seem helpful to you. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to put my own assumptions on that, but I think it's safe to say. <laughs> safe to say. It's not the most healthy that way to go. Everything is your fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> everything is your fault is not generally healthy, right. healthy for anyone. Oddly enough, uh, I don't know why. <laughs> Right, because we can't control most things. Right. Particularly when it involves other people. Right. Which is honestly one of the first things I tell the kids that I work with. You can't control anyone else but your own reactions. Mm -hmm. But yet, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to let go. Oh, of course. Especially when you want to Of course, because that belief has been reinforced by so many people throughout your life. Right. And experiences, not just people, all experiences. Yeah. Yeah. We have some more for you listeners, but first we're going to pause for one more quick break for a word from our sponsors. Okay. So a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair. I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something a little weird, something I don't want it to do, (laughs) then I I can't stop thinking about it the rest of the day. Oh my God, we've all been there. Pantene's rose water collection feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. Your hair doesn't look really great. Thank you. I actually worked in a place for a while that was very sensitive environmentally, and we weren't allowed to use shampoos that had sulfate in them, so that's something that I look for these days. And bonus, I love the way that my hair looks now. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Here's the thing. Saving money with GEICO is almost better than playing pickup basketball because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. 
It's almost better than sports. And just going back, I honestly, the things that I think I'm telling you are pretty much what I remember. And I don't know if it's because I've done so well in trying to push it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I get triggered by as you, the body memories or the senses that yeah. I have that I can't control as easily. Um, uh, and you and I talked about the uh, conferences that I go to about the mm-hmm. exploited children and having the moments of panic because it's too familiar. Um, some of the incidents are so familiar that I can't process it and deal with it at that point because mm-hmm. so, I'm so confused about why I would feel that way because I can't yeah. clearly remember why. Well, what do you remember about the transition from your maternal grandmother's care to the orphanage? Uh, I kind of distinctly remember um, being picked up from my grandmother's and transported to the actual orphanage in which my grandmother telling me I'm going on a trip. I was never told that I was actually leaving. Um, what I was told was I would be going on a plane for a trip. I remember that because I got really excited about an f- airplane ride because that was such a foreign um, mm-hmm. idea and it was such a like fantasy almost to be on a plane. Um, and so I remember being told that. I also remember going with this really kind woman who was like, I'm going to take you and get you a hamburger, which I'd never had before. Um mm-hmm. By the way, that's how you say it, with the more accents in it in Korean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just in case you didn't know, because I remember that. I didn't know that. Thank you. That's I remember that. I don't okay. know how I, re- I remember that. Um, and then also mm-hmm. getting a banana for the first time, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. Those are the two. F- much like my life, food motivates me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's what I was like, yay, I'm going to get a hamburger, and I'm going to get a banana. Um, wow. So... I remember getting those things and and showing up for the orphanage, and then that's it. So maybe it was the highlight of that. I do, and I think this is a part of the guilt where I was upset that I couldn't remember my grandmother. I do remember her crying. Mm. I do remember that. And there was, that told me as a child that she cared, and I felt guilty yeah. for not remembering her. Now that I'm thinking back on that, that she was crying. Um mm. Because she knew what you leaving signified. Right. And although the, it was never communicated to you. Exactly. And I don't think I, I don't know when I figured out I wasn't going home or going back. I don't think I was ever told. I think I just ended up being there so long that I figured it out. Wow. And that's when everything kicked in to start lying. Yeah. To survive with the girls who were <laughs> who had been there a lot longer than I had. And they mm-hmm. were also trying to survive. And a lot of that mm-hmm. means losing or being tough. And being tough means mm-hmm. dominating. Mm-hmm. And being dominating mean, <sighs> meant uh, making sure whoever came in knew who was the boss, mm-hmm. essentially. I think part of the trauma that I had growing up was being bullied (laughs) in an atmosphere um, that was all about surviving, essentially. So, yeah, I honestly can't tell you when I realized that I was never going back. That I see the tears, you know. Yep. Of Because I'm sure you're aware of what, when you realized that, what that may, what that must have been like for you as a child, right? Because huh. I actually never thought of that either. Mm. But I can tell you, I do remember being told when I was leaving. So mm. I have several. You and I talked about several of the incidents in between the fact, mm. um, but I do remember being told I was being adopted. And part of that had to do with, I think the only friend I made at that point had left before me mm-hmm. to go to France. Mm-hmm. 
if I remember correctly. Right. Um, And so soon after, I was being told that I would be leaving too because my one and only friend had left. Um, And I actually, unfortunately, I had pictures of her. Actually, uh, we had pictures taken together because there was a group of missionaries that came in. I think they were American missionaries, if I remember correctly. Of course, that was very documented, uh, which is kind of ironic and funny to me because I became one of those missionaries in college (laughs) that went and visited others and other, like, like, homes and such. Uh, But I remember being told, I remember taken to a, okay, yeah, I remember being taken into a small room and I told you about the two women who were very much advocates for me, telling me that I was leaving and them handing me a booklet of the family that I was going to live with or I, go, I was going home with. And I remember sitting there looking, going through those pictures uh, and being excited, also being confused because they were really white. Um, yeah. So I hadn't been around white people until that point. Um, yeah. actually at all. <laughs> okay, guys. So thank you. Obviously you heard it kind of abruptly in because we did have some issues with the internet. However, I felt it was still a good ending because it's a process. Yeah. So obviously it was one therapy session and we are only starting. But yeah. I am only starting. And I will tell you, out of the five years of therapy that I've gone through, well, I'll say five, I'm estimating how many times <laughs> I've been in therapy. Uh-huh. Um, this is the first time I've been able to concentrate on my past. Previously, I had so much trauma on a daily basis, whether it's death of kids, whether it's triggered because of um, some type of training, all of those things. Because social work is a difficult field to my social workers out there. I'm here for you. I got you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it it has finally come to the point that I can actually face those and address these moments. And it's been 30-something years yeah. that I had to even think about it. And I, I actually... Annie, you texted me, asked me how it went. I was like, oh, it was rough. (laughs) (laughs) True story. (laughs) And that's the thing is it was rough. And um, I'm going to tell you, these are the moments that it's going to be hard for me. I'm not going to come out feeling like I'm healed. I'm not going to come out like everything's okay. I'm going to come out really raw and really um, vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I went home to to my friend. I was like, I need a hug. I need a hug, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is, you don't know me, but I'm not a touchy-feely person. Yeah. That is not my persona. Um, and being independent and being strong, being sarcastic, um, mm-hmm. cynical, that's my thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so having these moments of like, I cried on air or on the mic, holy yeah. crap. Or I had to go home and tell someone, I need you to be with me right now because this was really overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and it's okay uh, for me it was a big breakthrough to be able to talk about some of the things that I didn't think on and mm-hmm. some of the things I didn't think on but actually affect my relationships today, affect um, how I process things, or even affect my relationship with my family, affect the way I perceive people mm-hmm. and some of the reasons I may have a successful relationship or an unsuccessful relationship. So, um, yeah, even though it is as intense as it sounded, and it's probably going to be very, um, what's the word? It's unfulfilling because you're not going to hear the end of this, but yeah. we will come back and tell you how it goes. It's okay. And I, I went through a moment, had a moment to digest, and I had to be able to say, this is where I need to be. Mm-hmm. And vulnerability is okay. Also, you all may have heard me stumble through um, trying to Get out of my chair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The damn headphones. <laughs> I just want you to know, trapped me. And I was by myself. And I was like, I'm going to live here now. <laughs> and so I was fighting very hard it with these like damn headphones. It sounds like an epic look, struggle. <laughs> look, it felt like it took two hours. I know it was probably like five minutes. But I was like, what the hell is this? I mean, five minutes to, I don't, d- to I, struggle that, with. Again, that may be also an exagger- exaggeration. But... These headphones were trying to kill me. I want you to That's know that. That's the only logical explanation. That's, this is exactly what happened. No one saw this. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying this is what happened. So <laughs> We do have a rumor that uh, these studios are haunted. So I'm going to say it is. <laughs> um, but you know what? 
all of that was necessary. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad, I hope for you that you weren't bored by it or you weren't overwhelmed by it. Um, I hope that it lets you know that it's okay to be there. And I do want you to know this. And I'm okay with sharing this with you because I think it's important that we get healing. And sometimes healing doesn't happen until much, much, much later. Yes. And um, I, I hope that for listeners um, who are like, oh, no, listening to somebody's therapy session sounds like the most boring hour of my <laughs> life. <laughs> I understand. Sorry. But Sorry. I hope that you did find them valuable or in some way informative because I do think and I I, I used to be this person who thought yeah, therapy was a waste of time but we we really appreciate you um, as we've been going through this this arc of trauma um, okay. this is a big part of it and it has been for us personal right very personal and so. I think again just to reiterate back to why we wanted to do this and I know We've gotten really great feedback, and thank you for those who have, and thank you for those who have stuck with us in this journey because it is unusual. And the biggest thing we wanted to relay is that it happens, and it's more personal than you know. And for those who don't understand, again, why we come forward or why we don't come forward or why it's so traumatic or why it affects us on a daily basis, even if it was 30 years ago, mm-hmm that it's important that we discuss it and it's important that we acknowledge it. Yeah. Yep. Um, We really appreciate all of you, all of your (laughs) listeners. Yes. Um, If you would like to email us, if you have any questions, um, you can. Our email is momstuff at HowStuffWorks. You can also find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast and on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. Talk to me. Yes. Samantha's been helping me with social media. It's awesome. Come talk to me. Yes. And thank you, Samantha, for joining us. Thanks to Dr. Coleman for agreeing to this very unusual (laughs) request. This unusual thing. Yes. Thanks to our super producer, Andrew, who's been helping us all the way through. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff Mom Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair. But Pantene is changing that. Pantene's rose water collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rose water derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's rose water collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben dye, and mineral oil free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.